Welcome to the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. This is our first edition of a new podcast focusing on all aspects of the M&A process, with the aim to learn how to do deals better. Our industry has a reputation for destroying value, but I think we can do better. I'm Guus Geven, and I will be your host throughout the series. The podcast is sponsored by Pilco, the due diligence advisory firm. Today, I welcome Sven Royal, Excel Chemicals and a senior Pilco advisor. And the subjects we'll cover today are, do deals really add value? What happens if you regret signing a deal? And pitfalls in integration and carve-outs. Sven, welcome. How did you get into M&A? Yes, good morning, Chris. I think it would have been 20 years ago when I was appointed head of strategy for chemicals, and that included portfolio management. I was fascinated by the rapid pace required for transactions compared to run and maintain business and the need to set a threshold of materiality to avoid getting stuck in the weeds on minor issues of no significant deal value. And it's still fascinating to conduct discovery on key risks and uncertainties in transactions. So Sven, let's start with what will most likely be the leading theme for a podcast series. The reputation the M&A industry has acquired for unmitigated value destruction. Sven, what do you think? Do we need better advocacy for the benefits that well-executed M&A deals can bring to shareholders, consumers, and of course also CEOs? Or is there a real problem here? Well, let me quote you from an article in The Economist of August last year entitled Blasted Other Dealmakers which noted that 2021 hit a record $5.9 trillion of deals announced. It also stated that if history is anything to go by, many of these deals will destroy value. The article goes on to argue that there is a substantial body of research that deals destroy value in more than 50% of cases, and that if you take into account the very good market conditions of 2021, including top-of-the-market valuations, the chances are we're going to see a number of write-downs and bankruptcies as a consequence. The article also lists a string of deals that destroyed value and one lucky SKP, Unilever, which had made a $66 billion bid for GSK's consumer healthcare division, now called Halion. The deal wasn't supported by shareholders, and today, if they wanted to, Unilever could buy Halion for a lot less given the current stock market value of £29 billion in mid-December. So what you demonstrate here is that our industry's poor reputation is not the result of poor PR. It's the truth of what's happening. And let's just assume if every one of the total of almost $6 trillion of acquisitions would be promising a 10% value uplift for the acquiring party, then for 2021 a total value promise will have been made to investors and shareholders of some $600 billion. But in reality, that won't be delivered, and it may actually be a negative number. These are huge sums of money at stake, and well worth keeping our podcast going, because if we can improve the value that these deals deliver by even a single percent, we've already generated $6 billion in a single year. Well, we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. Um, that assumes all prospective dealmakers involved are listening to this podcast, and we're not quite there yet. Pilco and Associates is the leading advisor to deal leaders and senior executives on operational, EHS and ESG risks and liabilities in the global chemical and energy industries. 
Since 1980, the firm has advised on over $600 billion of transactions involving facilities in 80 countries, including some of the highest-profile deals during the past five decades. Pilco's advisors have an average of 38 years of relevant professional experience in operational and executive roles with major energy and chemical companies. For more information, go to pilco.com. Our key subject today is what happens if you start regretting signing a deal. A classic example is the Musk-Twitter deal. While it's already January, last year's most spectacular takeover must still be fresh in everybody's mind. Elon Musk made a bid for Twitter in March, but then the Ukraine war started to cause more inflation and increasing interest rate triggered a slide in the share prices of tech giants including Tesla and Twitter. Suddenly, Musk's cash offer of $44 billion looked very expensive, and he announced he did not want to go ahead with the deal. His stated reason was the lack of transparency around 5% of the users that may be scam or fake accounts. Did he want to get out, or did he just want to renegotiate the deal? Let's look at this from a risk management and from a contractual perspective. Generally, the largest risk for a failed deal is with the seller, as the uncertainty around its future in the public sales process is inherently damaging, both for the business's competitive performance as well for its employee motivation. So if you're going to sign a deal to sell yourself or a part of your company, you do want very strong certainty that the deal will go ahead. That's why cancellation fees are common, with the buyer potentially paying $1 billion in the case of the Twitter deal. There's also a clause protecting buyers that is generally accepted in M&A deals, which is the Material Adverse Change, or MAC clause. This clause gives the buyer a way out in extreme predefined circumstances. Examples of items contained in MAC clauses are strikes, war, and act of terror. Sven, have you ever witnessed a deal falling through because a MAC clause could be invoked? Or are they generally very rare and extreme? I haven't experienced that personally, but if I were buying a large industrial concern, I'd want to make sure I could invoke the MAC clause uh, also in case of fire or explosion at any of the assets involved in the deal. That's a great example. And in the case of the Twitter deal, it appears there was only a MAC clause related to events with Twitter. So any adverse effect would have had to be linked specifically to Twitter, which may explain why Musk complained about the fake accounts. Well, a company that did have to face stopping a signed deal was DuPont, which was going to buy Rogers, a US electronics material maker, for just over $5 billion. It appears there were difficulties obtaining the Chinese antitrust approval, and this is actually quite a worrying trend for Western companies who are increasingly struggling to obtain Chinese antitrust approval. Do you think this could be a response to the stronger restrictions on Chinese companies doing deals? or even doing business in the West? That's very likely, I think, Chris. Um, and, and how do you think the DuPont retraction would play out contractually? Well, generally, most deals are structured to have certain closing conditions, as well as a long stop date. Typically, all the closing conditions must be met before a deal can go ahead. And if the conditions are not met, and the long stop date arrives, parties are able to step away from the deal. 
Closing conditions usually contain regulatory approvals, which DuPont reported had all been met, with the exception of the Chinese antitrust approval. The agreed long stop date was 1st of November, and late on that day DuPont and Rogers reported that the deal did not go ahead and that DuPont would pay the cancellation fee of $162 million. It's interesting to note that on hearing the news, the DuPont share price increased by 6%, while Rogers' share price fell by over 40%. Although, of course, the DuPont increase may have been affected by the announced completion of a significant divestment uh, on the same day. That's a great point. Here we are back at the value in a deal. Deals should be done because they create value, but maybe the DuPont shareholders were not completely sure about this one, while the Rogers shareholders were very disappointed that the deal didn't go ahead. And therefore, what both sets of shareholders agreed on was that DuPont had valued Rogers very strongly. That also means that DuPont might have had difficulties earning that high valuation back through synergies and other value creation mechanisms. Finding out how you can justify an acquisition on pure financial criteria is one of the most difficult things to do. Then making it happen is even more difficult, and you can expect that in this series of podcasts we'll come back to this regularly. Going back to Elon Musk's regrets, it's important to ask yourself... Under which circumstances would I regret signing a deal? I would suggest that everybody should ask themselves that question in advance of signing. The answer could inform what you want to wish to include in your MAC clause. Or, if it's not so material as to warrant a MAC inclusion, don't forget you have to negotiate this with the buyer, then consider if you might want to pre-agree as part of the negotiations a change in the acquisition price under certain specific conditions. While a Mac scuppers the whole deal and would frighten the seller, because they're looking for a deal certainty, a price adjustment would not be so unrealistic. Sven, let's role-play this negotiation. If you could be so kind to be the Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal, and I'll be Elon Musk. We are discussing this pre-deal signing. Hey Parag, I've been thinking. We live in volatile times and anything could happen. I'm prepared to pay $44 billion for your company, but suppose if stock markets crash, I would really have difficulty paying all in cash. How about if I pay you with Tesla shares? Oh no, Elon, your stock price is far too volatile, and any tweet you send out could then have a significant adverse impact on shareholder value. Well, that's fair. But how about if it's the price of all the tech shares? Let's take the Nasdaq as a reference. I can't influence that. Well, the trouble is I want deal certainty for my employees and shareholders. So in what circumstances would you want to step out of the deal? I appreciate you want deal certainty. So I only would step out in very extreme circumstances. Say, if the Nasdaq halves. That's never happened before. It's very extreme. Tell me more. Okay. For smaller changes, say a 20% drop in the Nasdaq, all I would want to see is an adjustment in price, which doesn't even have to be the same amount. Let's stagger it, so that at the 20% reduction, the price reduces by 10%, and with a 40% reduction, it's a 20% reduction in price. Let me discuss that internally, and it's at least positive I can reassure our shareholders they'll still be getting a good premium, and possibly even a better premium against the market. That was good fun, Sven. Thank you for that. 
I'll step out of the role play here. The interesting thing is that at the time of the discussions, these are hypothetical situations you're dealing with. And while the deal for Twitter shareholders was also good in the first place, in the circumstances described, it would be very good. Would Parag or any seller trade in some of that value to protect deal certainty? In fact, the Nasdaq had dropped about 20% between the moment Musk had bought his first 9% in Twitter on April the 4th and 11th of May, the day before Musk threatened to not go ahead with the deal. Would Parag have agreed such a price adjustment if Elon had proposed it? Would you? So the lesson here is to think very hard up front about which external circumstances would cast your deal in a completely different light and pre-agree which of these circumstances would meet the very high MAC threshold and which could be mitigated by some pre-agreed price adjustment. Similarly, if you are an energy company and you would have sold a business in 2021 with oil and gas prices at a fraction of what they are now, how difficult would it have been to include an anti-embarrassment clause allowing the price to increase in retrospect if certain extreme conditions occur. Clauses like this are also known as black swan cover. It's important to think through what extreme circumstances could occur that would make you think differently about the deal you're contemplating to do. This can extend to both the period between signing and closing, which we just covered, as well as the period after that, through so-called earnouts. As the event they cover seems so remote it's easier to negotiate these than you think. And while I've agreed a few in my career, one regret that I have is I could have done more of that. Sven, what's one of the most fundamental drivers for M&A in a commodity business like energy and chemicals? Well, apart from the obvious one of, of identifying synergies, it would have to be the outlook on prices and margins. If the buyer and seller have a fundamentally different view about future prices, there's a better chance that a price agreed for an asset can look good to both parties. So a buyer will have to think that prices are going to be better than in the value implied by the transaction price, while the seller thinks they may get worse. The narrower the gap is, the more difficult it may be to get a value agreed. One way to facilitate the price finding or discovery is to agree on an earnout. Now we're talking here about an extreme event happening after the deal has completed, but parties agreeing that it can still affect the sale price. It could, for example, be linked to the price of a commodity. So if the average price over a year would be above a certain level, the parties can agree up front that an additional payment can be made by the buyer. And this clause could be valid for several years after the deal closed. And so if I may challenge on the value front, if an asset changes hand purely because of the fact that buyers and sellers have different price expectations, that won't guarantee that value is going to be created. It's merely arbitrage between two market views. That's a one plus one is two deal. That doesn't sound great, but trust me, we'll also get to the one plus one is one deals. True value creation happens because an asset is better off in someone else's hand. For example, a company that has a great product but no market channels. So it sells its product to a company with great market network. Now that may be heading for one plus one is three. And that's what we'll keep our eyes on when looking at value creation in M&A. Concluding, the key lessons from this saga are. First, deals signed but not completed are very difficult to get out of. Second, therefore you must think hard in advance under which circumstances that can occur between signing and completions you would change your mind and discuss these up front 
and cover them in your closing conditions and the MAC clause. And thirdly, if you're worried about circumstances changing after the deal has completed, an earnout may help both parties avoid the risk of looking bad in extreme situations. Now, I'm keen to spend some time on the third subject, carve-outs and carve-ins, because this is an area where a lot of value gets destroyed in M&A deals. And it's the sort of the nuts and bolts of, of separating a business from its current owner and then successfully attaching it to the new owner. So why do companies struggle so much with separation and integration? Let's start with a separation problem, which is the curse of SAP and other enterprise resource planning systems. These computer systems are so comprehensive and integral to many multinational companies. Let's say you're going to divest a country that separating one bit will make it difficult to operate on a freestanding basis because all the steering capacity sits in the headquarters. Other companies have offshored many activities, so you're selling a country in Europe, but the back office functions are managed from India. Yes, I mean, it's quite a dilemma. Do you reshore the back office and separate the ERP system before you try and sell the business? But that means you'll have to explain that a business may get sold even before the sales process starts, leading to disruption and staff motivation issues before the sale has even begun. Or do you do it later once you've signed a deal? And that's a problem as well, because these things take a lot of time. And having to wait a long time between signing and completion increases the risks of changing circumstances, as we discussed above. The answer is it's better to do it afterwards, as it avoids the staff uncertainty. But in my mind, the clearest advantage is that you can point to the benefits of the deal that's already signed. That cash that the seller will have in the bank and a new future for the part of the company being sold. If the deal is not signed yet, that future is still very unclear and uncertain, and that makes it so much more difficult to get staff to do all the extra tasks that are required of them. It will also help a lot if you know who the buyer is going to be, as one might have different requirements than the other. But what matters even more than that is to have dedicated and preferably experienced staff who have been preparing for this implementation phase during the negotiations and take the rein as soon as the deal is signed to deliver. Another trap is buying a company and not spending time on integration because you have decided to let them operate on a standalone basis. Yes, I mean, we're seeing a, a lot of, of companies which have promised to accelerate their energy transition, getting to a point where they struggle to finance growth. And then they become interesting targets for larger strategic players or to private equity buyers. Large companies like the entrepreneurial approach and the innovation happening in these companies. And of course, they don't want to kill a goose laying golden eggs by making them part of a large and maybe more bureaucratic organisation. So they keep the company continuing on an arm's length basis. And all you then need to do is appoint a few directors in the company and you're done. Is that right? Indeed, this sounds quite simple, Sven, and the approach makes a lot of sense. But there's still a lot of things that need to be thought through in advance. Firstly, if the ownership and management are intertwined, then you have to assess if the company can still run when the management is cashed in and leaves, or if you need to set up a structure where they're incentivized to stay on. Secondly, you need to decide on which areas you're going to want to exert your influence. This can go from setting standards on health, safety and environmental matters to checking standards on compliance. Companies are much more heavily scrutinized on these issues the bigger they are. 
So what might have been acceptable in these areas for a small startup is suddenly no longer okay if the same company is part of a public company. Are you going to let the company enjoy the benefits of the modern organization? Or conversely, how do you avoid that they have to spend all their time receiving visits from HQ, who wants to know what have been bought? All these things work a lot better if you decide in advance how to answer these questions. If you don't, and you find out as you go along, then chances are very high that you will get to a point of discontentment, especially in the acquired company. And you may find you have killed the golden goose, despite keeping it at arm's length. The last pitfall is that the value premise does not get delivered due to poor integration planning and execution. It's very easy to say that the deal will generate certain synergies, but it's difficult to make it happen. Why is it so difficult to execute this well? I have a few explanations for this. Number one, good deal makers are seldom good integration managers, and vice versa. How many companies systematically separate the two? Dealmakers need to be creative, persistent, and happy with large amounts of uncertainty. Integrators need to be obsessed about detail and excited to look for every small bit of the elaborate plan falling into place. The dealmakers might have walked away by that time because they liked new things more than the last detail of the old one. I think you can solve this dilemma by having, in addition to a dealmaker, an implementation manager who provides advice during the negotiation and then goes in full preparation mode after signing. The implementation manager is in charge during the first 90 days and hands over to the long-term owner, i.e. the business that will be in charge, in the acquiring company. And then there's explanation number two. The value of the company should be front and center in the whole acquisition process. Firstly, it needs to be clearly described in your investment proposal. So you want to be able to describe how and why this company in your hands is going to create more value than it's already doing today. This needs to be backed up by your financial model, which no doubt will contain a lot of assumptions as it's dealing with the future. The implementation manager is going to be focused on thinking through what needs to be happening for each of these assumptions to become reality and creates an implementation plan. This plan is relatively high level before signing although it must be detailed enough to support the decision-making on the acquisition. Is it realistic to expect that all assumptions in the investment proposal can come through? After signing, there's going to be more contact with the acquired company. So the integration manager can, now together with the people in the target company, go a level deeper and detail the integration plan. And from day one, after completion, it's all about flawlessly executing the plan. If you look at the intensity of this work, it makes sense that it should not be the deal leader or the lead negotiator who has to do all of this, but the dedicated integration manager. So let me try and summarize your three top tips for value generating carve-ins and outs. Number one, if you're selling, obtain solid expressions of interest first and do the detailed carve-out after a sale and purchase agreement is signed. Secondly, if you're acquiring the business, decide upfront to what degree you desire full integration into your company, or if some sort of standalone model is preferred, which links you still need to build to ensure sufficient control and application of your company's standards. And thirdly, make sure there's a clear link between the valuation assumptions and the actions the integration team takes. 
So if synergies have been assumed, they need to be backed up by a plan listing the actions that will be taken to ensure the benefits are realized and by an integration manager who will be accountable. Great summary. And let me add a fourth one. You have to actively monitor staff satisfaction and motivation during the process. Whether you are buying or selling, try to set up a tracking chart that collects motivation-related indicators, such as sickness rates, staff surveys, resignations, safety statistics, and everything related, and discuss them frequently because, as you know, what gets measured gets managed. Thank you, Sven, for joining today. Oh, it was my pleasure, and thank you so much for inviting me. I hope you enjoyed the first edition of the M&A podcast. You can expect us to return to the themes of value delivery, due diligence and negotiation quite regularly as they are central to the profession. At the same time, there's so many aspects of M&A and so many skills required to do it well that you can expect a highly varied menu in our next editions. Listen to or download the next edition from your favorite podcast provider or from pilco.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.